Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 20th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We break down the key points of the new federal budget released yesterday afternoon. Next, we continue our discussion on the budget. We get reaction from Ken McKenzie, Academic Director at the School of Public Policy. It's a big day in the world of techies. It's new release day for tech giant Apple, but what will be the focus? We get some insight from Mike Yanni, the gadget guy. And finally, a local success story you can watch from the comfort of your own home. We meet Calgary-based chef Galasa Aiden and hear about his culinary journey, including his new role as a competitor on the hit Food Network show Top Chef Canada. 609, it's been a busy week across the nation with the 2021 federal budget dropping and new COVID cases rising. We're joined now by Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block for an update. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, thank you for taking the time with us. Let's, let's uh, talk about the most current item on the list, and that is the budget. Now, I find this really interesting. So if you can break down for us what you were doing. Uh, we understand you were locked down yesterday waiting for the budget. So, so why is that, and what was it like? So it was a really unusual year uh, for this lockup yesterday. What happens is because budgets affect markets, because there's so much government spending, mm-hmm. um, but we also need to see them as reporters to understand what's in them. The government sets up what they call a lockup. And typically that means you go to a physical site, you surrender your cell phone and your internet, they hand you this document, you go read it, and then at 4 p.m., we get on buses, they're police escorts, uh, you go to Parliament Hill, you get off, everyone comes running off the bus, and jumps in front of TV cameras and onto radio and files their print stories, and you get your budget coverage. Because of COVID-19 this year, we couldn't go to one site because it wasn't considered to be safe. Mm. So we were actually all in our bureaus uh, or our our homes in our respective locations. Let me tell you, if you heard about the Rogers outage yesterday, uh, that made that pretty interesting because a lot of us didn't have cell phones or internet uh, for large portions of the day. But you receive that document, you're allowed to read it, go through it. Um, You're not able to really get experts in the way we could. We could only bring one expert into our lockup because of COVID-19 for advice. Um, and then again at 4 p.m., when Christopher Freeland stands up at the House of Commons and delivers the budget, we're able to tell you what's in it. But we've had a couple of hours to try to dig through those 700-plus pages to figure out what's in there. So that happens every year. It's a lockup, a very different setup this year because of uh, COVID-19. But uh, we could see the emails coming in yesterday. You're watching people email you, but you can't really go back to them. Uh, Normally, we don't even see it. And I remember the infamous year uh, of the budget where um, Rob Ford died. There was a major terrorist attack that day, and we were all in a budget lockup with no phones, you can't leave, um, and networks are trying to cover this with one or no reporters in Ottawa. Wow, so many things piled on you. <laughs> so, okay, I, and I'm curious, is are budgets something that you, I mean, you've been doing it for so long, so do you, you, do you kind of get it, or, or who was your expert that was working with you that you kind of, do you both just sort of start reading and qu- as quickly as you can and taking notes and that sort of thing? So we had an expert, uh, he's wonderful, Sahir Khan. Uh, he is with the Institute for Fiscal Studies at the University of Ottawa. He used to be with the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is, of course, uh, the parliamentary watchdog on spending. So he understands all the words government use in budgets like nobody else, which is great, especially when you're looking at a big budget like this one. Mm-hmm. And, and we're still, frankly, not sure everything that's hidden in it. Uh, in terms of how we dealt with it, we had about 10 of us. 
we divided it up so everyone sort of had just under 100 pages. Everyone frantically writes up their notes, what's in there, highlights what they think is important, circulates it to the group, and then we had a video call to start talking our way through it and figure out who was taking what with the assignments. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's certainly a, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes scrambling that you don't see before that budget coverage. One of the most challenging budgets, if not the, in, in recent and modern times. My, my thought process is uh, going into this, you were not going to keep everybody happy. In fact, this was a case that I think everybody was, was ready for some pain and ready for some big dollars when it came to debt and deficit. What, what did you think the biggest takeaway from this 2021 budget uh, was? I think that this was a pandemic budget. I think it really wasn't the transformational budget a lot of liberals were hoping. Um, some of them really wanted to remake, for example, the country's social safety net and, and look at things like universal basic income. They couldn't do that because it would have likely been perceived as being very tone deaf. They did get one big spending change in there, and that, of course, is the universal child care, although it's contingent on the provinces agreeing to pay for half. And that could be a very tricky thing. Uh, but the government will be able to say, well, we tried to make it happen. The provinces didn't if it doesn't go ahead. So they've sort of already figured out what their exit route there if that doesn't work. Um, it was a very big spending budget. There was a lot of little things in there, like every page. Um, so they kind of threw in everything they wanted to spend in that was smaller. Uh, I, I think they thought this was the year that Canadians were perhaps willing to expect a budget of a size and accept that budget um, than any other year. A lot of the money initially is the extension of the pandemic spending programs, but there's also a lot of money for Canada's Indigenous people and programs, green, um, and then there's just kind of random stuff in there. There's money for the military sexual assault reformation stuff we've been talking about at Global. Uh, There's a little bit of foreign aid. There's sort of things thrown in here and there, uh, but it's certainly an unprecedented amount of spending. And the government has the opposition, in a way, a little over a barrel on this because nobody wants to be the one to call an election right now and explain to voters that they're the ones who's making them face it. So I think they were able to get away with a lot more than you typically could as a minority government. I like what you said there that, you know, this was the one time you could get away with spending a fortune on something and it would be okay because we're in the midst of this this crazy time and, and a crazy amount of spending anyway. I'm curious, did you think then with all the things that were peppered through this budget, does it seem to you, Mercedes, from your experience that this was... This is really a a looking forward to an election budget. It is. It is for sure. It's an election document. Um, I think it was less of an election document in some ways than I was expecting in the sense that they were not able to offer. I know some of the other programs that senior liberals were looking at. That doesn't mean they couldn't offer those in the campaign and say, you know, if you vote for us, then we're going to give you universal basic income or pharmacare, both of which were missing. Uh, I don't anyone will be campaigning on the raise the GST a point. category, although it's probably something future governments will have to look at to be able to pay for all this potentially. Uh, But it's an election document in that uh, they've provided the best case scenarios to make the numbers work. If anything goes off the track, their numbers don't add up, even to the high number that they have here. Uh, If they do, they'll be fine. But it's an election document, too, in the sense that it moves pretty far left in certain ways. I mean, they're eating the NDP's lunch on this, and they are prepared to campaign on it. And the tactic of putting money in Canadians' pockets and extending those programs 
certainly in a third wave. You can see where they're coming from on that. Um, but it also makes a lot of political sense because typically giving people money uh, when they are worried, providing for them is much more likely to result in votes than sort of big amorphous government programs. Okay, interesting and a very interesting, uh, hopefully once-in-a-lifetime budget uh, like this. Thank you for your coverage on it, Mercedes. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. From a countrywide minimum wage to huge spending on childcare, there's a lot to digest coming out of the budget released by the federal Liberals yesterday. To help us out, we're joined this morning by economist Ken McKenzie, who is the academic director at the School of Public Policy with the University of Calgary. Ken, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. So, first of all, your thoughts on the aforementioned $15 per hour federal minimum wage. Yeah, that's an interesting one. To be honest, it caught me a little bit by surprise in the budget. Um, We haven't really had a federal minimum wage in Canada before. Um, It's been left up to the provinces. And the idea here is that if provinces want to go above the $15, that's fine. Um, um, but, uh, there will be, uh, that, uh, you know, that $15 minimum wage. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens on the provincial front in that regard. Uh, $15 across the country is, uh, you know, that in, in some parts of the country, that would be a very high wage in other parts, quite low. So, you know, it, it yeah, it did catch me by surprise a little bit. Well, and, you know, Ken, during this time, if the $15 an hour came into effect a couple of years ago here in Alberta. We heard from a lot of business owners, particularly restaurateurs, who were talking about, you know, the razor-thin margins, and that was going to really push them to the wall. We could see something similar across the nation for those provinces that did not have 15 bucks during a time where the economy is in the tank. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of controversy, if you will, or discussion amongst economists about the extent to which these higher minimum wages actually affect employment. I think the impacts are primarily on um, younger people, uh, if you will. Um, and, you know, the general consensus now is that they, they, they may not have as big a negative impact on employment as we maybe once thought. But you're quite right um, at a time when, <clears throat> excuse me, when margins are very tight, especially in hospitality industries, et cetera, I think it's uh, it was an interesting uh, an interesting addition to mm-hmm. the budget. Ken, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the Liberals' plan to pump thirty billion dollars into childcare, saying that will reduce fees by about half by next year, eventually down to ten dollars a day. I mean, we're getting texts in this morning. Most people clearly not in favor of it, and I would suspect most don't have kids or have grown kids, so this doesn't apply to them at this point. Your thoughts on that policy? Yeah, this is something that they've been talking about for a while. Uh, and that $30 billion uh, is spent over five years. Uh, and then that's sort of the kickstart the program. And then it will level off at federal uh, uh, revenue uh, expenditures of, I think it's between 8 and $9 billion a year after that. So this has been something that I think has been coming for quite some time. As most of us know, uh, Quebec has had a similar program for many years. And what we saw there was that the labor force participation rate by women, um, which used to be uh, in Quebec much lower than the rest of the country, is now higher. So the hope uh, is that this will uh, encourage similar uh, entry into the labor force by women across the country. Um, You know, this would be, I think, uh, argued to be uh, a growth promoting uh, aspect of the budget. I mean, there is 
uh, we, we're, we're facing demographic uh, challenges in Canada as our, as our population ages, and we need more people in the labor force. And I think, um, you know, we've got relatively low uh, compared to men participation rates by women, and this, I think, is going to help. So, you know, I'm actually supportive of this um, as, a general, as a general policy. Um, one of the big sticking points here is that the feds are going to have to work with the provinces on this because this is a provincial yeah. area, and we'll see how that works out uh, over time. Yeah, and that's what they're saying. It's not a flip of the switch. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. There will be some negotiations. We got a text in here, Ken, that said the budget was irresponsible. And you guys are praising the child care and minimum wage. Also irresponsible. I don't think we've praised anything. We're laying out the facts, and this is what was in the budget. This texture goes on to say there's no money. Inflation will get out of control. So that leads to the next question, Ken. You know, from an economist's perspective, where is the money going to come from for the programs we've mentioned so far and the many, many more that are listed in this budget? Yeah, I mean, you know, the uh, the texture makes a good point. I mean, we do need to pay for this at some point. But I think we need to put this in perspective. Um, you know, there's no question that the the uh, the numbers are, I draw, you know, sort of quite shocking in a lot of ways. I mean, the deficit this year uh, for, for 2020-2021 uh, is, going to be $354 billion, historic. But, of course, we know that the vast bulk of that is because of the pandemic. It's it's slated to go down to $154 billion um, in 2021-22 and then projected to go down to $30.7 billion by 2025-26. Um, the big number that economists keep their eye on is this sort of net debt to Fed to uh, to GDP ratio, and it's going to hover. It's going to increase uh, over the next year or two, uh, from forty nine percent up to fifty one point two. But then it's projected to go down to forty nine percent. Now that is high relative to where we were before we entered the pandemic, but uh, most of the projections suggest that that is sustainable. So yes, it's a lot of money. A lot of it's going to go away as we emerge from the pandemic um, and we'll begin to approach something that's a little bit more, uh, you know, stable. But, yes, there are, there is money involved here. Let me just put this in perspective, though. Uh, prior to the pandemic, total spending, uh, federal government spending as a percentage of GDP was 14.6 percent. And by 2025, once we've unwound much of this, uh, uh, pandemic spending, it'll be 14.9. So, yes, there's a lot of programs that are being introduced here, but relative to the size of the economy, it's not jaw-dropping. We can certainly have a debate about the merits of some of these programs, but it's not completely, um, you know, a, a shock and awe sort of thing. Thank you so much for joining us and breaking it down, Ken. Appreciate chatting with you today. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Ken McKenzie, the academic director at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. And you can go online, policyschool.ca, for more info. 7.50, it's Mornings with Sue and Andy. And when Apple holds an event to release details on new products, people pay attention. Mike Yanni, a.k.a. the Gadget Guy, has had today circled on his calendar for quite <laughs> some time as Apple's expected to give consumers a look at what's next. With some insight, we're joined by the Gadget Guy, Mike Yanni. Good morning, Mike. Merry Christmas. This is like right? Christmas. Good morning, good morning. It's, oh, the speculation. Yeah, and, and speculation. that's what it is. So it any nuggets? People start speculating like months before Apple's holding an event because they've held events you know, in the spring, in the summer, and in the fall. 
but it's a crapshoot of what they're going to announce this time. When you think about the fall, what Apple product does Apple always announce, you guys? Is that when the new phone comes out? I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. The fall is the iPhone. Okay. Summer typically is watch, spring, usually iPad. Right. But they've thrown us for a loop a couple for the last couple of years. They've also used the spring announcement to announce Apple Card, their metal credit card. They've announced Apple TV service. So in the spring, it's always a crapshoot what they're going to announce. But all signs are leading towards a new iPad. Mm. Mm, That's probably going to take the spotlight today, probably iPad Pro. Uh, And when you look at that, of course, you're going to look at some certain upgrades, like the screen could be a big one. Uh, They're looking at changing the technology to mini LED. Are you guys familiar with mini LED? No, I'm not. So think of it this way. You have little LED lights that light up your display. So if you took a bed sheet and you had four flashlights shining on it and you knew you had to darken part of that bed sheet, you turn off one, Mm -hmm. but then you have a whole gap that doesn't have any light. Mini LEDs are about a fifth of the size of regular LED. So if you all of a sudden put 10 flashlights on that bed sheet and decide to dim one flashlight, you can pinpoint exactly where you want the screen to turn off or where it to be darker. That's what mini LEDs do. They add a ton more, uh, these little LED lights, so you can pinpoint where the darkness is going to be, so better contrast, better lights. That's one rumor it's going to be taking place. Better cameras. And, of course, their own processor that Apple built. It's not relying on Intel, but their own processor, which a lot of people are saying are much faster. So that's iPads and possibly an iPad mini. You what, never know, right? What are the prices on iPads these days, Mike? Oh, they range. It depends on if you want the iPad mini or if you want the, uh, you know, the bare bones model or the high end. I mean, they can go anywhere from 400 to, you know, 1200 and higher if, if you want the pro model, right? Okay. So they go kind of all over the place. But iPads is only the, the beginning of it. There's possibility of new iMacs. They haven't upgraded an iMac in years. So, of course, once again, looking at the silicon inside, is it going to be the new processor by Apple that makes things faster? They might even introduce colors for the first time. There's a lot of rumor about pastels. And if you look at the Apple invite that went out for the big event today, the Apple logo that's actually driven in a spiral is in a bunch of pastel colors. So a lot of speculation about that. So much speculation. Going to have to leave it there for time, Mike. But I know it's a big day, so we'll have to catch up and and find out what you think of these new gadgets when you have an opportunity to play with them. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. This is Mike Yanni, known as the Gadget Guy. And and on YouTube, you can find his channel by searching Gadget Guy Mike Yanni. 909 on Mornings with Sue and Andy, a local man who previously earned a reputation as one of Calgary's most promising young chefs, thanks to his performance as head chef at the Dean House can now be seen on our TV screens. Galassa Aiden joins us now with more on his journey to become a contestant on Top Chef Canada. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it. Before we get to, you know, what it's like to be on a show that features your profession and the intricacies behind it, because I would think there's a lot of pressure. We'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about your culinary journey. At what point in your life did you say, this is for me, this is my profession? Yeah, so for me, it kind of started in 2014. Um, I graduated high school in 2010, and I took a couple years off, and I just wanted to enjoy life. And then from there, I went to uh, SAFE because I wanted to become a power engineer, uh, mainly because all my friends are doing it, and my family kind of pushed me in that direction. And I got a part-time job while I was in school uh, in a kitchen at a Joy Tomatoes, and I kind of fell in love from the first day that I stepped into that kitchen. And I knew that engineering was not the direction I needed to go, and so I actually dropped out, uh, not even before (laughs) the first semester had finished, 
And I just told my family, like, listen, look, this is, I found my calling. This is the first time in my life I've felt true passion. Just like, it felt like I was finding myself in a weird way. And yeah, I just put my head down and I didn't look back. I didn't want to go to culinary school. I didn't want to go back to school in any way, shape or form. So I just spent all my money on cookbooks and I challenged myself to make a new dish every single day. And yeah, I just put my head down and worked and lo and behold, you know, six, seven years later, I'm, I'm over here on Top Chef Canada, which is pretty wild. That is awesome. Now, I hope I know the answer to this, but was your family like, oh, what you got? You're crazy. This is ridiculous. Or were they thinking, Galassa, get in the kitchen and make us some food then? <laughs> no, they're, they're, my parents mean so much to me and they're, they're always very hard on me because they want the best. So they were very against me becoming a chef and I think it was just their way of trying to push me to see if that was really my dream and if I was going to fight for it which I ultimately did and now you know they're my biggest supporters and I love it. Well, let's, let's uh, chronicle your journey because you mentioned uh, Joey Tomatoes. And that's a throwback for a lot of us. And then uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we know uh, stops at the Dean House and, and we know that uh, was at River Cafe. Uh, where did you go uh, between, the, between that and where you're at now and, and what's the future hold for you? Yeah, so I went from Joey's to River and then from River Cafe to Dean House. And from there, I actually ventured out into beautiful BC and uh, I moved to Panorama just a... Uh, outside of Invermere mm-hmm. to take over the cliffhanger restaurant at Grey Wolf Golf Course. And the reason I did that was to just kind of put myself in a new position, you know, away from the fine dining theatrics of Calgary and really kind of take resort food and golf course food and just spearhead it to become really amazing food and kind of change that dynamic that you would get kind of out of Ski Hill with, you know, your, your burgers and whatnot. But I just wanted to elevate it with the same fine dining techniques, but just do really awesome casual food and show the people here in the Valley that you can have awesome food. So that was my plan and that's where I'm at right now. Fantastic. So uh, as you know, when you're on the show, you've, you're following in the footsteps of some pretty impressive chefs here in our city, like Charcuts, uh, Charcuts, uh, Connie D'Souza, the Cluck and Cleavers, Nicole Gomez and Gin Bar's Jin yeah. Lee. So do they reach out to you and, and give you some help? Do you, do you look, you know, for some support or advice from them or is this, you're just going on your own? I'm just going on my own. I have a ton of respect and admiration for those chefs. I've seen every episode of Top Chef Canada, so I I saw how well they represented the city. So I just wanted to try and do the same, you know. I, as you said, following in great footsteps, so you just kind of want to continue to carry that torch forward. Top Chef Canada, of course, kicking off the new season, and I'm wondering if you can give us an insight. I'm not sure you might have... Signed a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, but, <laughs> but you congr- can tell us. Congratulations on winning. The whole, no, we don't know anything about what's going on <laughs> down the season. Give us an idea because, you know, being in your kitchen, having the opportunity to create a menu, there's got to be some pressure. But when the cameras are rolling, and it's got to be just a whole different environment. So tell us how it, it differs from watching the show to, to being a part of it. Yeah, so, you know, when you're on the couch watching the TV show as a chef and you're hearing these challenges, your mind's pretty quick at thinking of, you know, some useful ideas. Now, fast forward that to actually being in that kitchen with all these cameras on you and the country watching becomes way more difficult to think of those dishes. So it's just a matter of trying to stay grounded and not letting the moment get too big for you. Otherwise, your brain's not going to be able to work that in a way that you need it to. So I want to ask you the question. It's a Top Chef title. 
and there's a $100,000 grand prize. Which one is more important? Maybe not to you personally, but in terms of your career, can $1,000 get you a lot farther? Or does this Top Chef title, would it ultimately do something really impressive for you to move you forward? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the money would be great to, you know, start up a restaurant of my own, but I wanted to do this for my legacy, for the title. Um, the money was just a bonus. And for me as, you know, a young black chef and in my culture, you know, predominantly women cook the food, men stay out of the kitchen. I'm changing a lot of dynamics and a lot of um, conversations. And I just, I want it for the title more than anything. Let's talk about, you know, uh, one of your uh, competitors, co-competitors is Alex Edmondson. Uh, of course, another Calgary-based uh, chef and got started in Calgary anyway. Uh, do you think that it's just a coincidence or is, is Calgary getting to be recognized nationally as the culinary hub that we are? And how do you think we stack up across the nation? Because we've got some real talent here, don't we, Galassa? Definitely. I think we stack up very well. And, you know, Calgary has predominantly been known as kind of, you know, beef and potatoes kind of mm-hmm. county. But there's amazing chefs all over Calgary, and Alex is just a testament to one of that. So I think it's nice that we're finally getting that recognition from Calgary. And, you know, not, not to sleep on any of these Calgary restaurants or chefs. Like, the food scene there is amazing, and it's only going to continue to get better. Well, the show kicked off last night. We will be officially watching you, cheering on our hometown boy. Uh, Top Chef Canada airs on Food Network Canada, of course. Good luck to you, Galassa. Appreciate your time. Thank you guys so much. Have a great day. You too. We'll be hoping to talk to him maybe when he's crowned the winner. You never know. Oh, and I hope... Galassa Aiden, I should tell you. Galassa Aiden Aiden is his name, Top Chef Canada. Remember the name. Now cooking out of, uh, uh, you know, the Panorama Resort. But having said that, you can't go there because we're restricted right now. (laughs) Good point. But I hope my kids were listening, but probably not because they're online schooling right now. You hope. He, he said, and this really like flipped me. I was like just insane with this number. 2014 is when it started for him. That was seven years ago. Now he's helming restaurants. That's now he's amazing. a contestant. And, and back then he was an engineering student. Decided to give this a shot seven years ago. And arguably one of the up and coming chefs in our entire nation. And it switched from say to doing that to culinary arts in 2014. It does seem in that industry that you're able to shoot through the ranks really quickly if you're that good. Yeah. I don't think it's, you know, everybody that gets like that, but good on him. So be watching it. Two local chefs on the program. Love it.